It has come to our attention that a mysterious force is loose somewhere in outer space. Welcome to Talk Tank. Sponsored by the OVH Cloud Startup Program. Hello, you have reached the Talk Tank. The official LSE Entrepreneurs Podcast, where we delve into the minds of those who think, live, and breathe outside the box. My name is Jessica G, and I will be your host for today. Welcome to Bits and Bytes, our series dedicated to innovation and technology at the heart of society's change. By searching into the technology that drives transformation, we will meet the humans who revolutionize our lives bit by bit. Today, we speak to our fellow beaver, Lisa Makarova. Lisa is the head of LC Generates Gap, a 12-week accelerated program designed for early-stage startups to reach new heights. Bringing insights from all over the world, Russia, Germany, America, and the UK, to name a few, we hear from the woman who co-founded Zebra Farm, a resource high for startups, and who is a visiting lecturer and entrepreneurship coach at Imperial. Indeed, living up to her status as a top 25, under 25 entrepreneur in the Netherlands. With more degrees, scholarships and achievements than I can count, it is my honor to give a warm welcome to our guest, Lisa. Thanks, Jessica. Great to be here. Yes, amazing. Why don't you go ahead and introduce yourself in your own words? So who are you? Who is Lisa Makarova? And like, what do you do? (laughs) <laughs> Thanks. I was thinking about it. It's, it's a tough question. I'm someone who likes helping people get businesses off the ground. I guess that's mm-hmm. like a fair summary. I really like listening to people who can say like, hey, I'm Lisa and I do X. And I'm like, in my case, I think it's like, hey, I'm Lisa and I do X, Y, Z, F, A, B, and C. <laughs> so it's kind of difficult to figure out where to start. It's very context specific as well. I realized recently how I introduced myself. So yeah, I guess the gist is I do a lot of work to help startup founders. That's yeah, yeah. what I do and who I am. That's a nice little summary. So I noticed you had quite like a, a life journey traveling all over. You began in Russia where you did your first bachelor's and then you went to Germany and then the UK. And so you're, you're originally from Russia though. So I'm wondering like, what was your thought process behind this? You know, what motivated you to do your studies away from home? Yeah, great question. It's interesting because a lot of people, most people I know who move abroad, they either like grew up thinking that we're going to go to a different country or they were always interested or they, there was always a plan. I didn't have a plan. Yeah. It's, it's, it was like a pure coincidence, really a bit of luck and just something that happened to me. I wasn't planning. It was more like I was born and raised in Moscow and I was going here to university. I, I was studying international economics, something, and minoring in English and German. And my German teacher at some point turned around and said, do you want to go to Germany for a semester? And wow. I was like, maybe, yes, I guess. <laughs> and it was like, it was very interesting because if you say it to a European person, I realize we all have slightly different perspectives, but if you're like mm. in Spain and somebody says, oh, do you want to go study to another country? It's almost normal now because there are so many programs, scholarships, Erasmus, this and that. Yeah. Erasmus is like shocking <laughs> i was like I oh to germany really you're sure uh, see, so a lot of your peers at the time they weren't really doing the same thing exchanges they were abroad. four out of 500 that were wow. all abroad yeah Gosh, and it was all scary. Scary. it was it was i mean i was relatively well traveled for a russian i was well traveled at the time i've been abroad mm-hmm. i spoke english and german and i was like yeah that's cool and it sounded brilliant but i just it was more like i never thought it was possible 
So yeah, that's kind of how the first thing happened. And then once I was there, I really liked the education system. I also, my exchange was to study business, not econ. And as I learned, <laughs> I'm more of a business student than like an econ student. And I loved it. And I just thought I should transfer. And it took me probably six months to put, to figure all the paperwork out and all this. It's, it was quite cumbersome, actually quite difficult, but eventually I moved oh, yeah. and I finished my first degree there in Geography already. Wow. Very impressive. And the first of many degrees, because I actually noticed you have a bachelor's, two masters and a PhD, which is just an insane amount of education. So I, I think I can conclude that like school education is very important to you. But in this kind of field that we're in, like business and entrepreneurship, a lot of people say that like college degrees or uni is not really necessary. I'm kind of curious. So like, what's your take on that? Do you think education is necessary for entrepreneurship? And would you recommend people do their education before like starting their own business? I mean, that's a tough, we are also at one of the best, we're probably at the best economic university in the world, right? So this is like, yeah. it's hard for me. I'm not going to turn around and say, no, you shouldn't study. But um, at the yeah. same time, I think everybody has to find their own way. I, yeah. for me, education is almost a hobby. I like oh, really. I like, I like going to school. I've enjoyed every, almost every minute of it. And it's, it was just something I was brought up with. I think when I was six, I knew that I was going to have a PhD. And, you know, second year. Oh, when I was six, I was like rolling in the mud. Oh, my God. I was also rolling in the mud. But with this idea kind of imprinted <laughs> than me, uh, that, that I was, I was going to go for their entire education system, however far you can go. And it was just, I was almost pre-programmed. Whether that's good or bad is a separate question. But I was kind of raised to believe that I had to do that. And it was... Most of it was quite easy for me, so I didn't see a reason not to go all the way. I'm to your original statement. I don't yet have a PhD. I'm supposed to. Oh, I will submit one. in August. I'll submit oh, in August. Okay, so. so there is a little bit left, but I'm, I'm making good progress there. So, but yeah, yeah you know, do people need to? Mm. Um, I think we all learn in different ways, and there are kind of two main points I want to make here. One is I do not think people should go to university because they want to start a business. I don't think that one kind of directly leads into the other. Universities are great for a number of reasons, but um, business is a relatively applied field. So that's not necessarily a direct thing. Like you go there and you learn exactly how to build a business. You don't, but you learn a lot of other things that might make you more likely to be successful at building your own company, right? You meet the people, you learn the skills, you learn certain frameworks that allow you to have a certain way of thinking about things. You, you develop the mental models, you develop the soft skills and you meet the people. And that's ultimately, I think without, I mean, in terms of why do we go to university if we want to start a business? I think there are a lot of benefits that I've just listed. And then obviously there are other benefits of going to school, like stamp on your CV that you've gone to one of the best schools, True. which has a lot of good things about it. You know, universities put a lot of, a lot of effort into choosing people that are good so that when employers look at it, they know that, oh, you've gone for that school. You must be good because they've actually put a lot of effort into choosing the best students. And they were also educated to a very high standard. So then they are more likely to hire you because of all these things. So. Yeah. Yeah. And I kind of going to what you said about CVs and stamps of approvals and, you know, getting jobs with that. So I actually noticed you did go at some point down a more traditional path. You had two internships at PwC and one at Deutsche Bank. So obviously this is something you pursued any further because now you're in the startup space and you're doing lectures and entrepreneurship coach and Imperial and all this stuff. 
but this is something that you tried. So as someone who's like still a second year and most of our listeners are kind of like in the same box as me, like we don't know if we should go into like typical investment banking, accounting, stuff like that, or if we should do something more creative and startup-y, you know, I want to ask your opinion, like how did you find those fields initially and why did you turn away from them? That's a, yeah, that's a difficult question to ask. I think there is no, no one size fits all, right? There is, mm-hmm. I, at some point in my life, I would say, oh, I don't like corporate careers. Um, I think it's a very unfair statement and it was a very much your, mm-hmm. from my side to say that because I think everybody has to find their own way. There are a couple of things yeah. you want to consider when you're choosing a perfect job and for some people perfect job a perfect job could be working for the largest corporate in the world for some people that could be starting their own company and there is anything in between as well right we shouldn't forget that but for me personally i grew up to a single mother who was (laughs) self-employed and i was kind of destined not to have a nine-to-five job because if you grow up and your only role model is a person who doesn't have to job and who doesn't have to go to work in the morning you don't really have a reason to believe that that's the way to go Mm-hmm. And I think it's both a blessing and a curse. It's a blessing in the sense that I feel a lot of people choose to go to corporate careers because they don't see any alternative because they grew up in a world where they don't have any reason to believe that it's possible to make a good living without doing that. Mm-hmm. And they almost feel somewhat forced to do that, which is not a great, they're good reason to go to corporate. That's not the one, that's not one of them. Uh, you shouldn't do that just because you think that's the only way. And you should do that because that's actually something good for you to do. That's one. but. Having grown up to a mom like that, I was thinking, you know, maybe I shouldn't exclude a possibility that I might actually like doing a corporate thing. So mm-hmm. I've tried. <laughs> I've tried <laughs> one, two, three times and I had a brilliant time. I learned a lot of things that are very important to my career mm-hmm. to date. But I also learned that I cannot function like that. It just doesn't really sit well with me. So I don't see a reason to have to be in the office every day at the same time. And yeah, so that was a good, so I did it ultimately to try things out and confirm my suspicion that it might be not something for me. And then I I totally get it. I'm doing like a very similar thing right now. I'm trying to, I don't know what industry I want to go into or if I graduate. So I'm trying to do internships from anything that interests me and then see how that works out. If I can, you know, go with that type of life. So it makes total sense. And I also noticed though, that you dabbled in some more creative fields. So you were like in photography and fashion. So you know, that's kind of different from startups and corporate jobs as well. So what was that experience like? And do you think it kind of fueled any entrepreneurship in you in any way? I think it was just adding to my desire to try out different things, but also to, I think we all have a bit of creative side and you want to find a way to express that, whether that's taking a dance class in the evenings or whether that's painting Mm -hmm. and maybe, you know, having an Etsy shop or something. And um, I was always shooting. I was always making pictures. I just enjoy that. Uh, I recently bought my first real proper professional camera. Oh. I used to make a little money on the side when I was an undergrad student doing studio photo shoots. And it was just what? enjoyable more than anything. No, that's so true. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah, I feel like as people grow older, they tend to lose kind of their creative sides and like their, their touch with hobbies. Like I remember as a kid, so many crafts and knitting and now I don't do any of that anymore. But no, I can see what you mean. Would you still enjoy doing that though? Just, I'm Uh, I'm curious. uh, I feel like my attention span, like I'll feel anxious doing it. Like, oh, I should be doing something else. But maybe if I just had like a complete week off, like right now is reading week. If I was to pick up some knitting needles, I I could have fun with it. So Um, it's interesting because, you know, probably a lot of people listening to that, they're going to be at the same stage in life where you are. And 
I feel like what I found for myself, and I think it's true for a couple of people around me as well, maybe that's quite generalizable, is that people mm. tend to, when you graduate high school, you first start preparing for uni and then you mm. takes quite a lot of energy out of you and then you do the whole university experience and then you get your first job and it's always stressful and then at some point you get to the point where you can slow down a little bit and you start reconnecting to who you were as a teenager that's that's exactly where i'm right now in my life yeah 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 one other thing though so you actually this is really impressive you co-founded uh this kind of resource hive for startups called zebra farm in 2020 so can you tell us a little bit about like what was what was zebra farm what resources does it offer and like also why not call it something like unicorn farm since we're in the startup space this is yeah that's great i think i also i think lastly we need is more unicorns we need some right this is like we, we do need some and i have nothing against i think at some point somebody almost had an impression that i was against fundraising or anything i do teach oh, people to fundraise i i consult people uh, on fundraising as well uh, for work so that would be kind of silly and my husband works for a venture capital fund as well so i don't oh, think <laughs> i'm vc agnostic i work with plenty and very happy to be there but i think one of the important things we got to teach people which we kind of don't right now mm-hmm. do a very good job at is that raising money and striving to be unicorn is an option it's not mm-hmm. the only way to go and there is this almost, I've discovered it, I think, four years ago. So when I started lecturing and engaging with university ecosystems in London mm-hmm. to help students coming out of schools wanting to start up. And every time you, I mean, almost every week, somebody would come up to me and say, Lisa, we have this pitch deck. Can you help us with that? And I would ask, so what, what's the pitch deck for? And they'd say, we want to raise a million. And um, I'm like, great. So do you, you know, do you have a product? They're like, no. I would like, do you, I, I first asked, do you have any revenue? They said, no. I would be like, okay, so do you have a product? And the answer was no. And I was very, you know, at this point, you become very um, intrigued more than anything and say, so you want to raise a million, you have nothing. And, you know, why do you think that's possible? And they said, but that's what everybody does. And it's, it's, it's a big problem. Oh, wow. We have an ecosystem right now that we we seem to be encouraging, especially younger founders to raise money without understanding what fundraising means, what implications it has for the type of business they're going to build and whether what they're building is even VC backable. So you'd say, you know, you look at the deck and you say, oh, your market is a bit too small. Maybe a large investor wouldn't like it. And somehow instead of thinking, maybe we shouldn't go to that investor, maybe we should, there is a different route for us. Usually what people think is like, how do we make the market look larger? Um, how do we make it bigger? Let's find a fix, Lisa. How do we make it bigger? I'm like, we don't. They're like, but we want this investor. I'm like, why? And we have this continuous <laughs> conversation about that. It's fun. And you know, it's not one, two, five people. It's like 200 <laughs> that I've, I've met over the last couple of years. Oh my and it's quite scary. And I think the worst thing about that is, well, there are a lot of, you know, it's it's not a great situation. We should be teaching, explaining to people what fundraising means and why they would mm. fundraise, how to build business without fundraising. But yeah. this hype also creates a lot of work for VCs. Mm. They get applications from people who should have never applied. And they yeah. get so many from them that it makes their system very inefficient because they still mm. have to look for all of those to see if they find somebody who is actually VC investable and is an interesting case for them. And there is a good chance that there is somebody in there, <laughs> but you mm. have a pile of a thousand instead of having a pile of a hundred. Mm, I see. Wow. Okay. That makes a lot of sense. Um, 
like I think what you said about the whole hype about creating unicorns and fundraising without actually knowing what it means or having like a solid product. Like I find that to be very true. I mean, I know so many people in like my cohort, my class, my year who have started startups, which I don't understand what they do. So I want to know, like, how is the LSE startup ecosystem since you basically work with it every day? And are there any trends or like stuff, student behavior, just any insight? Yeah, it's actually great. I was somehow not expecting LSE to be such a booming startup ecosystem as it turns out. Really? So <laughs> I'm very positively surprised. I mean, I started working with Generate first doing a little bit of work here and there and now much more involved. I think we started seven, eight months ago and I was like thinking, you traditionally think of London School of Economics as a school that trains people for banks, consultancies, yes. governments, and this very traditional, for lack of a better word, jobs, which is great. And that's what the school is there for. <laughs> but what I think we figured out and what Generate was founded based on was there's students becoming more and more and more and more interested in entrepreneurship. And it's a very diverse group of students and it's a very diverse group of a set of ideas. I think it's beautiful because there is anything and everything happening within that from more traditional businesses and e-commerce platforms to something more venture-backable. So more like actually people can and do go down the VC route. If you've seen, there was, I think, a recent article from Sifted that ranked European universities by number of beauty. Yeah, I think we were like seventh or something. I don't know, remember. But yeah, we came up, we came up very high and there is a, there is a number of unicorns that came out of LSE, which is great. It tells us that there is their, you know, there is their desire to start up. And as LSE generate, we're very well positioned. And the reason we exist is to help get their startups off the ground. But I think there are... A couple of more like really prominent themes and it's not, um, it has nothing to do with LSE really. I think that's what founders are like everywhere. And the one that pains me, they're one that everybody is kind of aware of now more than before is their lack of problem solution fit. So people trying to build something without really understanding where the customer's pains are, why they're needed and being very yeah. Solution focus, but that's something we know, like with the whole Lean Startup movement, which is actually quite old now, but with all their, you know, books and education, YC and all the programs and everything, we kind of know more about it. So that one is somehow taken care of. At LSEJ, right, actually this year, we started offering series of validation workshops to oh, yeah. uh, teach founders or wannabe founders how to take the idea and check whether that's actually something the world needs. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, we have like a methodology behind it and everything. So that's, you know, but that point, again, I think that's something we are more aware of, which is really helpful. The one that we're still not talking much about is this idea of founder fit. You know, that's something that entrepreneur first is very strong on because that's, you know, that's where their business is, is to find the people to uh, kind of help them find the right businesses for them to build. To build. And mm -hmm. the question is, what's a right business for me to build? And it always comes back to, do you have anything to do with the problem? Do you know anything about the industry? And it sounds very straightforward. Yeah. What happens in practice with first-time founders is that they usually want to they see, you know, they read a McKinsey report that says there is this big problem in the market and they're like, mm -hmm. oh, this is so cool, let's solve it. But they are not connected to that problem themselves. They don't know, don't really know anything about it. And they think it might be like the big and it might be a very important problem to solve, but they mm -hmm. 
either I completely ignore it or underestimate how important it is to have somebody on their team who is connected to that problem or who knows about it. I see, I see. That makes like complete logical sense. Like if, if the problem it just does, right? to you and you're not, and you're trying to solve it, like are you fully behind that? Probably not. You're probably more behind the idea of solving it. It's a huge industry and you're going to make so much money in the profits. Yeah, I see what you mean. So you also, you do entrepreneurship coaching at Imperial and you're, whilst you're still working and doing Gap at LSE, I kind of, I'm curious to know since Imperial, like UCL, KCL, they're all kind of like London unis as well, maybe our competition, but what is like the startup ecosystem there compared to LSE? Like, do you see a difference and, you know, difference between the students and is there anything we could really learn from them too? That's a great question. And a lot of people ask me, what, what, what are they doing at Imperial? We want to know. Yeah, <laughs> give us the insight. Well, I think the beautiful thing is from their LSEJ perspective or from actually every, so most London universities now have some sort of an entrepreneurship center. Everybody has a slightly different take on that. But the thing is, what's beautiful is that we are more, I think we see it more as a collaboration than competition because we are not really competing. In a sense mm. that we help our students, they help their students, and there is rarely a crossover. So in this sense, we are more, you know, collaborators and we've actually, I think, historically been organizing some programs jointly with Imperial and other London oh. universities. So there is a lot of, there are a lot of uh, potential, you know, there are a lot of, there's a lot of collaboration in place, but in terms of their, so that's, you know, more from uh, the JRED perspective, but um, in terms of different ecosystems, I think by nature of what LS, what subjects LSE offers degrees oh, yeah. and what Imperial does. I mean, they are a STEM school and mm -hmm. obviously they have more technologically heavy, deep tech like ideas. And mm -hmm. that also means that from my perspective, the person supporting uh, founders on their journey, especially first time founders, the challenges that they experience might be slightly different. Fundamentally, they are all, I mean, the process that you take founder for is the same. Uh, but they just might have slightly more different questions because of technology and something yeah. actually I might feel a bit out of that. <laughs> With <laughs> sometimes people would ask, so like, you know, you're talking about this and that, and this is how we fundraise, but what if it takes 10 years to build this thing before, right? Before we can make revenue. And I'm like, oh, it's, oh that, yeah. that's hard. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. How do we do that? Um, yeah, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, obviously, I mean, there is a more reasonable answer to that, but it's, it's a bit different because it's them. Other than that, yeah. I think, I mean, founders are very, I think most student founders are very similar in terms of patterns of behavior. I started my first company out of universe, out of business school as well. And mm. we were <laughs> as uh, clueless and making the same mistakes that everybody I coach now does. So that's quite, you know. Yeah. I think everybody goes in the, on a very similar journey. Yeah, yeah, definitely agree with that. And I do think, yeah, we are more collaborative from what I can see on our side as well as students. Like the London Startup Fair is a good example. That's like a collaboration between UCL, Imperial, LSC, and we're all gathered together in a big space and having like a fair. And I mean, for any listeners out there who are interested as well, we're actually planning on having an LSC Startup Fair, which Lisa has very kindly like helped us with for the venue which will be happening in March. I'm not going to confirm a date or anything yet, but we have stuff working behind the scenes. So very exciting stuff. Anyway, so you also, aside from like Imperial and LFC, 
you've also been to a bunch of countries, as I kind of mentioned in the intro, like Russia, Germany, USA, UK, and you've been consistently like studying business in these places and kind of experiencing the ecosystem once again. So I kind of want to know, because I, I, I haven't really had these experiences abroad like you have, and I think a lot of our listeners maybe have not yet. So what do you kind of see the differences are in startups among these different countries? And I think a big thing as well is, does the UK have anything to learn? Is there anything like that we don't really pay attention to or know about that is like a thing or a cultural difference in these other countries? Yeah, I think, well, the good news for everybody listening to us is if you're in London, <laughs> London is the best place in Europe to have a startup in. Mm-hmm. And um, it, it really depends, uh, obviously, on what industry you are in. And it's, it's, it's sort of a generic statement. But if you are raising money, you're in the right place. Mm-hmm. Unless, you're in <laughs> Unless you want to. In that regard, I think UK is viewed as a slightly more developed later stage ecosystem. And which is good because their support system is a bit more rigid, but it's also, you know, we things already, everything is already in place. So there is less, I guess, space for creativity for people like me, because there are a lot of support things already existing for startups. So yeah. there is not that much new stuff that we can create for them. <laughs> so in the sense, you know, somewhere where the startup um, ecosystem is at an early stage of its own cycle, then there are very mm-hmm. different challenges that are in terms of startups themselves. I think the only thing that's fundamentally different is the view on fundraising. If fundraising is something very location specific, say what we think is a seed round, what our valuations are, how much mm-hmm. money we invest and everything, it differs tremendously from one place to another. It's just mm-hmm. like day and night between the US and here and between here and continental Europe, the differences are enormous. And I think a lot of founders do not quite understand that before they start fundraising. And I wish they did because you cannot take, you know, an American inspired mm-hmm. say, oh, I looked at this company in the US, they valued it a million. We're going to value ourselves at a million, but we're raised early. I've tried it once that doesn't work so well. <laughs> so yeah, that's just something to be aware of. But other than that, I think startups are I almost once tried to write a paper, not very successfully so, but I, I still think they're, they're, the thoughts hold mm-hmm. is on the, the fact that there is such a thing as a global startup culture. Mm-hmm. And it's very true. The words we use, the way we talk, the way we dress, uh, the way you interact with people, the mm-hmm. values and the processes, they are all inspired by the Silicon Valley. And we all watch the same stuff. We really use the same language. And it's, it fascinates me that wherever you look, if you look at the routes in the developed server ecosystem, the pitch decks are going to look almost identical. Yeah, oh, really? It doesn't matter whether you're in Berlin, in London, in uh, Lisbon, or mm-hmm. in the uh, US, you know, that's going to be approximately, you know, the same pitch deck, which is yeah, kind of fascinating. Okay. But now to kind of change topic and go to a new section. So this section that I'm going to be asking you questions about is called Real Talk. What we basically do is it doesn't matter because we have like a large array of guests. They come from all different um, industries. So people can work in like cartography, map making, or they're authors, or they're like fashion models, or they're in the startup space like you. But it doesn't matter what questions and like what their answers are, because they're all kind of like the same. They tie into like deep philosophical kind of like societal questions that we just want your general thoughts on. And we find it very interesting how they vary from industry to industry. 
So my first signature question, and like, don't worry if you need a minute to digest it or anything, because it's quite quite a heavy question. But if you could change one thing um, about society, what would it be? I actually do have an answer to that. I think it's it's well aligned to with what we talked about in the last you know half an hour or so. I I think there are obviously there are many things that really trigger me. I I'm a person who I'm really into. I was trying recently to narrow down what industries I want to support companies in. And I'm kind of really into everything well-being. And it's a very, I keep it as a very broad, I really care about people and how well they're doing. And that's a very broad area. It goes from, you know, not eating trash food, sleeping all the way to education and anything in between. And there are a lot of things that really make me be like really upset about. But there is one that I really think we could fix. And I think that's Mm. what I love for us to somehow find a way to it's a complex societal problem so it's not that easy but we talked about this idea of finding we first talked about corporate jobs that people feel forced into though there are some people who love their corporate jobs and there's nothing wrong with that then we talked about starting up a company in a in a field where you actually like about doing something that you feel passionate about so what i would want us to do is to have a world where the education system allows people to believe that they could do something they actually want to do. I, I mean, I can I can dwell on it forever, but I think they're one of the most painful things for me in daily life is to meet people who are doing something they really don't like doing because they don't believe that there is another way. And I, I think that a lot of the ways we do, like the way the education system works today from kindergarten all the way to uh, university, PhDs and oh, yeah. it, uh, forces you to think in a very kind of narrow-minded way about what your possibilities are, what you can actually do. What you mean. Yeah. And people don't, you know, we talked about reconnect, reconnecting to your childhood or teenagehood passions, and we kind of disconnect from that. And most people just keep on doing what they were doing without really thinking about what they actually like to do. Yeah, no, I, I see what you mean, like sunk cost fallacy. Like, because from a very, very early age, pretty much no matter what education system you're in, you'll told like you have to pick your subject your path and you just follow it and you know like you always have time to change your mind but it's like you've already spent years pursuing a certain subject like doing a certain thing or say you're like three years knee deep into med school and then suddenly you're like I want to be a painter well there's that whole sunk cost fallacy like I've already spent so many years and invested all my time and effort into this and now I can't really like turn around on my head and just do what I want to do so I definitely see what you mean. And I mean, with like A-levels as well in the UK, I think what you pick three or four subjects and then usually like related, you can't pick like psychology and then like chemistry and then like, you know, that usually people will pick like chemistry, bio, whatever, because they decide, oh, medicine or whatnot. But one thing that since I went to high school in Canada, I really appreciate is they really allow you to like diversify your subjects. So even though you might focus on like, I don't know, sciences or like business more you still have these outside options of like oh let's randomly throw psychology in there or like a gym or a sport which I really like in in the American system because I mean like American systems are very like extracurricular based as well they want to see that you're more than just one subject or one path that you might not be happy sticking to whereas in the UK it's like you just like your personal statement for example when you apply for university it's like they barely want you to talk about extracurriculars. Just talk about academically, you know, your subject, like a researcher, kind of write like almost a mini dissertation to try and get in. So it's, yeah, it's exactly. very interesting. And 
Yeah, yeah. Like what you said about school systems, I can, I definitely like agree and see that as well. But uh, in yeah. the American college system, which I'm not necessarily a big fan of, but there is one thing mm. they do really well, which is they, you don't choose a major <laughs> for the first year. Uh, you, you do all the subjects and then you figure out what you want to major in. And this kind of answers a little bit my question, but maybe you have a different answer as well for this. But, so my second, second signature question would have been, what's an unconventional truth you believe helped you achieve your success? That's a difficult one. Mm-hmm. And I think based on what we just talked about, I see a lot of things in a different light from what people, as opposed to how other people see them. And I'm kind mm-hmm. of very, I look at something, I see why it doesn't work. And I'm very happy to try to fix it, even though it might have been working this way for like 300 years. So I'm mm-hmm. very, yeah. But I think when it comes to this, something that's more um, important that really helped me I, as your question goes, achieve my success. I think I've, I think founders and other people, they don't get lucky. They create their own luck. Mm. And I'm very strong on this. I've on a number of levels, but on one, I studied social networks for part of my PhD. And mm-hmm. it's all about creating opportunities for yourself and being out there and increasing chances of serendipitously meeting someone. That's mm, the way life works. But it's also about asking. I think one of the things, one is creating opportunities to ask, so meeting more people, but the other one is actually having, you know, the guts to come up to a partner of a consultancy and ask for a job in an elevator. I did it once and it works really well, apparently. No way. Wait, uh, did you say it worked out well or? It did, it did, it did. I was, I applied multiple times and for whatever reason, I just didn't get this job and it was like super cool. I, my CV was just written for it. So I was like, I don't get it. And I, I almost cornered him. We're going from the first floor to the ground. <laughs> and I was just like, I have a quick personal question. He's like, sure. We were walking out of a meeting, which is unrelated to me or whatever, but I, we had, mm-hmm. I knew him somehow professionally. And I was like, I just was trying to figure out why your company doesn't want to hire me. <laughs> and I have, no, I have a great say literally that to him. Uh, it was potentially milder and it was in my um, unpressed German, but you know, I'm, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. And I was like, I really don't get it. And I can, you know, and he was like, yeah, just send me your CV and he hired me next day. So yeah. Yeah. You have guts. I I can see Uh, what you mean by have the power to ask. But it doesn't hurt asking, right? I think it's a lot of, a lot of people think that other people don't want to help them. And as a sociologist, I'd say that it's fundamentally untrue. We really, people like helping other people. We like, yeah, we actually, there was something that connected you helping other people to your health and showed that you actually are like happier and therefore whatever. So it actually even has a positive impact on your, you know, on your physical (laughs) condition. We are wired to help other people. We're communal creatures, right? We actually want to help. Yeah, yeah, definitely. So we should be less afraid uh, to ask. Worst thing they can say, I'm busy, you know? But. Yeah, yeah, true, true. I mean, what's the worst they can say? Like, I feel like a lot of people, they come up with like the worst case scenario and they exaggerate it in their head and make it a really big thing. When in reality, like, what's the worst they can actually do to you? Say no, ignore you, like, okay. Maybe be a bit rude to you or something. Like, it, it doesn't really matter. So, I mean, great unconventional truth. Probably one of the best I've ever heard for like the podcast. Anyway, though, thank you so much, Lisa, for coming on. Thank you for your time and for talking to us about your excursion through the global startups 
system. To wrap up our interview though, we have one final question to ask you. If you could invite anyone in the world you want for a podcast interview, so if the script was flipped and you were the interviewer and you were interviewing someone instead of me, dead or alive, like fictional or real, but who would you invite like as your guest? Like literally anyone. Stephen Bartlett. Oh. I would you like to uh, he's their newest yeah, he is the newest dragon on the Dragon's Den. Yeah, twenty year old multimillionaire who's made his fortune and now he sits next to Peter Jones and, <laughs> and wait, wait, what did he create? Uh he built a social media agency and he I think took it public and made a lot of money and then he exited basically and he's not really well for himself. He's twenty nine, he comes I think of 28. So he's, he's basically, he's my age. He comes from quite a rough background and he's built his own empire and team. He cashed out and he's now at a stage, he's like super young, super capable, has money. And he's trying to figure out what on earth are we supposed to do here with this life? <laughs> he has his own podcast called the diary of the CEO. And it's amazing. I started listening to it recently. I didn't know who he was, to be honest before he joined Dragon's Den. And I was very surprised that I didn't because his podcast is just brilliant. And I would really, I even the list of guests he invites, they are like the people I usually read and listen to. And I think I just really want to talk to somebody like that who is really mm -hmm. spending, he doesn't have to work for the money, but he works and spends a lot of time doing things, trying to figure out what's, I was like, what's the meaning of life? What am I doing here? And I would really want to want to dig into that with him. Yeah, yeah, very interesting. What's his name again? Stephen Bartlett. Stephen Bartlett. Okay, yeah. I think I'll, I'll check out his podcast. It sounds really cool. There, obviously. Anyway, Lisa, it was a pleasure having you, and thank you so much for coming on. Thanks. And if I can throw in the last point uh, for anyone yes, listening yeah. to us who are on LSE campus, at LSE Generate, we just opened a brand new co-working space in the middle of the campus. And I think if anybody wanted to do something with us, you guys more than welcome to stop by, get to know us, talk to us, see what we are doing, come check us out. If you're working on anything entrepreneurial and if you're working on your own business, you can come work from the space as well. And it's great. So if you haven't done much with LSE Generate before, come find us and we'll be very happy to help you on your startup journey. Yeah, very cool. We'll also put that location in the description with maybe a link to the Generate website or something. Anyway, it was great talking to you, Lisa. Thanks again. Perfect. Thank you, Jess. Thanks for tuning in. See you next week and leave your message after the beep.